Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Impact Makers Podcast, where my goal is to provide you with tools, tips, resources, and information to help you build a career that you love and a life that matters. When you think about diversity and inclusion, what comes to mind? Is it a book that you've read, a training course that you've attended, or maybe a positive or negative experience you've had with someone who's different than you? Each of us probably thought of something different because, well, we're all different. But my guess is that when I ask you to think about diversity and inclusion, not many of you thought of a straight white dad from Omaha, Nebraska with a serious expression and a generous amount of tattoos. But I do. And there's a good reason for that. Joker Stant is not only a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion, he's an expert who's trained leaders or introduced DNI programs in Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, government entities, and everything in between. And he's regularly out in the world speaking at major conferences and events, helping others to see not only why diversity and inclusion are important, but how we can all become conscious champions for it in our work and in our lives. Like many guests that I've had on this podcast, Joe and I first met on social media several years ago. He caught my attention not only because of his funny tweets and social posts, but also because he's a great writer who writes about a topic that not many in his position do or have the credibility to do so. He's passionate about the work that he does, and that passion and expertise has been developed through a lifetime of experiences, starting from humble beginnings growing up on a farm in small town Nebraska, oops, actually Iowa, (laughs) to confronting some of his own biases and personal challenges as a Marine, a sales guy, a nonprofit leader, a corporate executive, and now as an author, speaker, and inclusion strategist, bringing greater clarity and new practices to diversity and inclusion work. I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Joe, not only because he's got great things to say about diversity and inclusion, but also because we talked about his journey that he's been on since getting laid off from his corporate job and deciding to step out on his own 11 years ago. It's not always been easy, but I think you'll find what he's learned along the way to be helpful to you if you have a dream that you want to pursue or a goal that you'd like to achieve. Joe is different which is great because his work is all about throwing out old rules and replacing them with creative new strategies that better serve today's society. So we're able to liberate the unrealized potential that exists in individuals, groups, and organizations. So let's get right to my conversation with my friend, Joe Gerstant. Well, thank you, Joe Gerstant, for joining me today. You are a person that I admire, respect, and I'm intrigued by, and I am looking so forward to having a conversation with you and learning more about you and the work that you do. How are you doing today? I'm good, and thanks for the invite. I'm, I, uh, I appreciate this, and uh, I feel the same way about you, so it's, uh, it's an honor to be a part of this conversation. Wonderful. Well, when I think of impact makers, I like to think of people who are certainly doing good out there in the world and and creating great work and helping others. But I also think of people who are doing it in a unique and interesting way. And again, you come to mind for me when I think about that. But I want to know, I mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm not sure I know the whole Joe Gerstant story. 
I'm not sure how much of the joke or stance story you want me to know. <laughs> but <laughs> tell me a little bit about who you are. Tell me, I mean, I've known you, I've known of you, but tell me a little bit more about who you are and what you do and how you got here. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a really big question, and you 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 prepped me before we started with that, and I, I still am not quite sure how to answer, but um, I'll, I'll try to give you an overview. I think I think a big part of of who I am is um, a person that keeps learning from their own mistakes, um, and and I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, I, I'm originally a farm kid. I grew up uh, on a farm in Northwest Iowa, a pretty small, pretty rural community. I uh, graduated the class of 26, um, and, uh, and and for what it's worth, I graduated 13th out of 26, and I've kind of, <laughs> I've kind of tried to maintain that mediocrity throughout uh, my entire run, but um, I, I can remember in high school, uh, we got to this point in, I don't know, 10th grade or 11th grade where people start asking you what you're going to do after high school, and people are coming up with these plans, and, and I, I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I think I think part of it was for me I, as I as I grew up on the farm and I wasn't exposed to other a lot of other jobs and other careers and there I, I just I didn't know what I wanted to do uh, when I grew up and so uh, the one thing that was of interest to me was uh, the military and so after high school I spent four years in the United States Marine Corps and that was a really uh, really transformational experience um, I learned some things about myself. I got to travel. I got to see some things. Um, and I really wasn't thinking about issues related to diversity then. I wasn't thinking about that word for sure, but I think I learned some of my first diversity lessons then because I went from a community that had very little uh, diversity to uh, a Marine Corps infantry unit that had tons of diversity. And it was interesting that um, as I got to know people who were different than me in lots of different ways, I was surprised to learn different things about them. Um, and so one of the things that I learned from that is that I went into those relationships with expectations. I already made assumptions about some of those people. And, and that was, I think that was one of the interesting kind of learnings that I, that I took from the Marine Corps. But um, that was a really interesting experience. Another, another important aspect of my four years in the Marine Corps was that um, I really believed in what, what we were doing. Like I, um, the pay was horrible. The working conditions were often horrible. The living conditions were often horrible. And, and none of that really mattered. I, I, I really loved it. I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, I came pretty close to staying in the Marine Corps. Um, and so, and that stuck with me, that, that, that the, the power of just believing in the value of what you're doing. Um, but I got out of the Marine Corps after four years. Um, I went to college. I went to Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. Um, and I have a bachelor's of science degree in agricultural business. I don't really know why. It's just because I still hadn't figured out what I wanted to do uh, when I grew up. And um, after college, um, I began my illustrious sales and sales management career. And I did that for about six years. And, and that ended up being a pretty dark stretch of time in my life because um, even though some of those products and services that I sold were good, even though there was times where I was successful and got good commission checks, I just didn't believe in what I was doing. And, and um, for me, at least, when, when professionally I'm not doing something that I'm connected to, something that lights me on fire, my whole life is, is kind of a mess because of that. And, and um, I, I really kind of struggled for a stretch. And, and for, a, for a while, I kind of thought that I was the problem. I thought there was something wrong with me or that I was lazy or that, um, you know, I just thought that I was the problem. Um, and um, 
and I, and I, and I had a hard time figuring out what to do. And I eventually made a, a career change. And um, I went to work for a small nonprofit organization called Nebraska AIDS Project. And uh, Nebraska AIDS Project does two things. They provide care and support for people living with HIV and AIDS, and they also do prevention and education work. And, and I went to work on the prevention and education side. And, and um, I thought I was pretty, I guess, open-minded and progressive and those kinds of things when I went to work there, but um, I wasn't. Uh, I, was, I had a whole lot of work to do, and, and that was another transformational work experience. That, that's, a, that's a job um, experience that kind of cracked me wide open in a lot of ways. Um, and, 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 and it was kind of amazing that I found myself working there because uh, I'll go back to uh, my high school time. Um, when I graduated high school, when I was 18 years of age, if, if you would have asked me if I was in any way racist, I would have said absolutely not. I probably would have said racism doesn't exist uh, when I was uh, a senior in high school. Um, but I had certainly picked up racist ideas and attitudes and beliefs. Um, if you'd have asked me if I was sexist, I would have said absolutely not. But I certainly had sexist attitudes and beliefs. But I was loudly and proudly, um, as an 18-year-old adult, homophobic. In fact, as a senior in high school, uh, for our senior speech class, my final speech was called uh, I don't remember what it was called, but the topic was how AIDS was God's way of punishing human beings for us allowing homosexuals to exist. Wow. So blatantly, loudly, aggressively homophobic, probably even more so by the time that I came out of uh, the Marine Corps, not because of the Marine Corps, just uh, because of, I think, me and, and uh, the way that maybe that culture rewards um, macho, high testosterone behavior. Um, but um, so, so I'd already come a long way to some extent, but I wasn't near um, as far along on the journey as I thought I was. I had a lot of things to learn still about myself and about the world and about other people. But that was an incredible working experience at Nebraska AIDS Project. I was almost always in the minority, which is an incredibly valuable experience. Um, and uh, and, and it was when I was doing that work, I worked there for two or three years, it was when I was doing that work that issues of diversity and culture and inclusion and community just started to take on very different meaning to me. Um, I had always kind of believed that we should, for the most part, treat people, um, you know, the right way and equally, but I, I just didn't believe that there was much bad stuff that happened anymore. I, I kind of thought most of that stuff was in the rearview mirror, but now I was around people that were different than me all the time, and I saw the way in which they were treated mm -hmm. by families, by institutions, by employers. I saw them being treated differently than I had been treated, not because of things that they had done, but because of who they were or who they were perceived to be. And, and uh, you know, being confronted with that and seeing a lot of that and hearing people's stories, um, I, I think it was that point in my life where I felt like this is something that I, that I have to be involved in. I have to do something about this. And, uh, and that's what kind of pushed me towards the work that I do today, focusing on diversity and inclusion. After I left the Nebraska AIDS Project, I went to work for another uh, national nonprofit, the National Conference for Community and Justice, which I don't believe exists in the same format anymore. Um, but they do human relations work, diversity inclusion work, primarily for young people. Um, and then I went back to the corporate world for one last time. I was the the uh, got hired to be the first diversity director for a for a regional healthcare system and kind of built 
a program there from from scratch, uh, focusing on workforce diversity, having an inclusive organizational culture, and delivering culturally competent care. And that uh, and uh, I left there about eleven years ago. And in the meantime, I've been doing this work uh, externally and speaking, advise and and consult, um, and am happily and and fortunately married, and and have three uh, healthy crazy children. And uh, right now we have a, a one dog and, and two cats. <laughs> and I, I love all the, you don't share that much about your family in terms of pictures, but I love the pictures of your kids and the dog oh, and the cat you. seem to have a personality that fit with your family. <laughs> for sure. For sure. There's, there's just always a lot of things going on here. So, <laughs> Well, I have, I have like, uh, I want to hit all the points along the way. Again, uh-huh. so interesting already, but let's go back to, I mean, I'm a fellow farm kid. Um, a lot more people in my high school class, but I, you know, it's interesting. You say you grew up in a town in Iowa with 26 people and, you know, diversity wasn't really something that you recognized. And, mm. and I've shared this with, you know, other people before I grew up in Tennessee. So in the South, um, mm. largest high school in the state at the time, there were 700, or I think almost 700 students in my graduating class, some hundreds. Mm. Um, and I graduated 23rd. So <laughs> Much better. <laughs> Much better. Statistics-wise, I guess. Um, but there were not that many diverse people in my mm. class or my community. Mm. And in fact, I played sports and played basketball um, and can remember distinctly we had one African-American female and one African-American male on our basketball teams and mm. going to, a, uh, to play a rival county next door where... African-Americans were not allowed. It was very mm. well known and, and that they, uh, well, one of them actually, when we drove, rode in the bus to the community, uh, got in the floor because she was afraid. Wow. Um, and so, that's, you know, that's it was, heavy. And that's, yeah. that's, that's during our lifetimes. This is an ancient history that we're talking about. Yeah. And again, in the largest high school in the state uh, that, that we had wow. such little diversity and that even that person, you know, we, we certainly supported her, but it was a, it was something that we were aware of going into this basketball gym to play in a place where she might not, and probably was not welcome. Mm. Um, wow. And I was happy to see recently, she actually ran for uh, city council in our mm. hometown. So, you know, obviously yes. she's come a long way and, and the community's come a long way, but, but to kind of like reflect your experience to then go to college, which still probably wasn't as diverse as it could be. And then to go into the business world and to course beget more world experience and travel, et cetera. And, and to begin to see the diversity that I didn't have the privilege of growing up with um, right. for a lot of reasons. And how do you think, you know, obviously that shaped you, but going into, you know, kind of graduating and then going into the military, where, as you mentioned, a much more diverse group of people that you need to work with and will build friendships with. Was it kind of like a shock to your system or how did you handle that initially? Um, I don't think it was a shock. I mean, going into the Marine Corps at first is a shock to your system. You you maybe think you know what you're getting into, but you don't have any idea. I, I can remember still when we got dropped off at boot camp and, you know, the first 48 hours, the only thing that was running through my head was, I've made a horrible mistake. I need to talk to someone so that I can go home. It's just, <laughs> it's kind of crazy and overwhelming at the beginning, but um, but but I didn't I didn't go into the Marine Corps with any real animus towards people of different race or ethnicity um, didn't didn't carry any conscious conscious uh, conscious intentional bias or hatred or any of that stuff so I, I think 
I, I think it seemed cool and interesting to me. Um, um, I, I, you know, I, I, lo- I, once I got into the Marine Corps and figured it out, I loved being a Marine and I, I loved being around other Marines, but it, but at least on the race and ethnicity aspect of things, because, um, I, I was in an infantry unit, it was all men, but at least on the race and ethnicity thing, I was consciously kind of learning about that along the way. And there was just a lot of little things. I was just constantly kind of reminded that I was going into these relationships with expectations. I remember um, one of my dearest friends um, while I was in the Marine Corps, a gentleman by the name of John Perry. He was from East St. Louis and he was African-American. And um, I can remember when we were first getting to know each other, basketball came up in our conversation. And, and he had the audacity to tell me that he didn't like basketball. He didn't play it. He didn't have any talent for it. Didn't have any interest. Didn't watch it. And I knew that couldn't be true. I I, I just knew in the back of my head that he was setting me up for a joke. And mm-hmm. and and it wasn't a joke. There was no punchline. That's true that he didn't have any interest in basketball. But but I went into that relationship with this idea in my head, thinking that I knew something about him simply because of the color of his skin. And it was easier for me to kind of believe that than it was at first, at least, to believe the words that were coming out of his mouth. And so I, I kind of hold on to those experiences because I think when it comes to issues of diversity and inclusion, we still break things down into this very binary idea that there are good people and that there are bad people. Right. Um, and that, um, you know, that, that, that bad people are blindfully hatred and then good people don't have any bias at all. And, and I can look back on a lot of my experiences where I didn't have any hatred. I didn't have any conscious beliefs about African-Americans or Hispanics or Asians, but I had these kind of unconscious assumptions and expectations. And, and isn't that interesting? Where, where do those things come from? And the same is true. You know, I talked about the fact that when I graduated high school and even later through my life, I was pretty homophobic and I had some very homophobic attitudes, even though I had never met anyone that identified as gay or lesbian. And so I think, you know, today when I, even today when I talk about diversity inclusion, I still use a lot of those examples because I think it's a lot more complex than whether you consider yourself to be a good person or, or a bad person. Mm-hmm. Human nature is a mess. It's, it's crazy and chaotic and we're very complex and nuanced. And that binary idea of good, bad doesn't, doesn't do a very good job of capturing it. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, kind of reflecting on my own experience, thankfully, I kind of pursued life and and all of the uh, new things that I would see is interesting. You know, mm. it was interesting to meet people that were different right. than me that I had not grown up with. And but right. yet, I'm not, as you said, I'm not perfect because I still, I even today, catch myself. Thankfully, hopefully, in my head most of the time, um, with a bias. You know that. Right. Oh, and then I, I, I hopefully know enough that I can catch myself and say that's that's not accurate. You know, or you don't know that, or don't, that's not the way you should be looking at this. So I just hope that as we continue to grow as a more connected community and society, that we can all embrace that curiosity about each other and want to learn, uh, myself included, to to really um, get the benefits of all the difference out there. Right. So the Marine Corps you know, kind of yeah. away again from that small community to the Marine Corps. And, and you should mention, and I've certainly seen your posts over the years that stays with your once a Marine, always a Marine. What, what, you know, kind of looking back on that experience now as having been a person who's been in the corporate world and in the work that you do, and now as a speaker and trying to help others to really get people to embrace for what 
what for many is a, a new or, or not well understood concept of diversity and inclusion. What do you think, can you take from your marine experience that you went all in on that, that it became part of you, part of something that you believed in, even though, as you said, the pay was bad, the working conditions were bad. What lesson can can we take from that? Or have you been able to share with people about how we get people to rally around uh, being a part of something or an, uh, of supporting something and an idea, et cetera? Um, well, I, I think, you know, a big part of what lit me on fire about the Marine Corps was, uh, as I said, I, I believed in the value of what we were doing. Like, regardless of what I was doing on a particular day, I believed we were part of something that was playing a positive role in the world. And, and that was really important for me. I think one of the other things that was really important for me in the Marine Corps, and I think also was part of my challenges in the corporate world was I was exposed to some really strong leaders. Um, not every leader I had in the Marine Corps was amazing, but several of them were amazing. Incredible leaders, incredible human beings. And not that I didn't have any good leaders in my corporate time. I did have a couple of really good leaders, but there was just a noticeable difference in, I think, the quality and the style of leadership. And, and the Marine Corps is different than uh, corporate America for a number of different reasons, but I really saw a difference um, in, I think, the level of leadership. And I think one of the other things that really spoke to me in the, in the Marine Corps was that um, a lot of things as far as moving up in the Marine Corps were based on scores and how, many, how, how long you'd been in the Marine Corps and how long you'd been in your current rank. But there was also other ways to go around that. If you were really driven if you were really hungry and really wanted to move up the ladder, there were ways that regardless how long you'd been in or regardless how long you'd been at your current rank, there were ways that you could be promoted meritoriously. And I really, that really spoke to me. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a terribly patient person. Um, I don't want to just max things out and then put my time in. I, I want to find ways to move up the ladder or move down the road. And that was one of the things that I really appreciated about the Marine Corps. And I was able to be promoted meritoriously a, a couple of times during my time there. And, and, um, you know, when I, you know, so going from there to the, the time that I spent in the corporate world, I had a harder time connecting to that sense of purpose. Not that it's not there. Um, but I had a harder time connecting to that and feeling good about what we were doing in the world. I, I worked for organization that had organizations that had really wonderful values but that's not the way that they behaved on a, on a daily basis. They talked about, you know, things like integrity and value and all that stuff. But the conversation on a daily basis was, what is your number? What is your number? Yeah. What's the, what's our number for today? That's all that really mattered. And like, I, I get that. I, I understand how math works. I understand how business works. I don't have a problem with any of that, but that to me, that just doesn't, that, that doesn't motivate me. Um, um, that doesn't motivate me and doesn't drive my behavior. And so I, you know, that's, that's part of why, why I was struggling and, and, you know, that's me, Pe different people are motivated by different things. Um, and it even took me a while to figure out what I was motivated by, but I think those, those three things really drove me in the Marine Corps, believing in the value of what we were doing, the, the style of leadership, the quality of leadership and, and the opportunity to, if you were really hungry and really driven, and you really wanted to do a bunch of extra work, uh, there, were, there were ways for you to move up um, pretty rapidly. Is there a way that companies can kind of embrace some of those concepts? Is it, is it having clarity around what's required to move up? I, I mean, I understand the 
having great leaders that you can work for, but are there yep. things that we can apply in the business world or in our lives that that help people to see how they can grow as leaders? Yeah, I, I think so. I think um, I think there's a lot of small ways, and and some of it doesn't necessarily involve giving people necessarily giving people different titles, but putting people in situations where they can take on leadership at a, at an earlier point in time. Small things, letting letting different people run meetings, letting different people set the agenda for meetings. If if people are hungry and driven and they want to move up, um, I think making them pay their dues. And and I'm sure there are some situations where dues just need to be paid, but I I, I don't think that you know, if we actually care about talent and ability, I, I don't think that paying your dues always goes along with that. One of the things that I saw frequently when I worked in sales was when the sales manager left, it was almost always the most senior salesperson that got the sales manager job. And being a senior or even a successful salesperson is in no way, shape or form correlated with your ability to lead other salespeople. And I, and I don't know how many times I saw I saw people ruin sales teams just because they had been there the longest, and so they got the shot. and And I think um, I, I think I still see organizations do things like that a lot. This is the way that we do things, um, um, and I and I and I don't know that that's always the best way. Mm-hmm. Well, from the Marine Corps, you mentioned kind of then going into the nonprofit world in a a role that sounds like it was unexpected. How did how did you end up in working for a nonprofit? Yeah, so I, I was uh, professionally very frustrated and um, let's see, a raging alcoholic and not living a very healthy lifestyle and had a marriage that was on fire. I don't think I mentioned those things the first time through the story, but um, I was looking for um, I was looking for a place to do something with my creative energy because I wasn't getting an outlet for that at work. Mm-hmm. I was also, I was living at Omaha at this time and I was kind of trying to figure out if I wanted to stay in Omaha. And so me and a friend, a gentleman, I think, you know, Jason Lordson, we were, we were kind of both trying to figure out if we wanted to stay in Omaha or not. And we started doing a lot of volunteering locally. And uh, so I, I was a big brother for a couple of years. I ran a, a youth leadership program at the Boys and Girls Club, and I had started volunteering for Nebraska AIDS Project. And, and, and in all honesty, the part of the reason why I signed up for that was to kind of broaden my horizons. I had, uh, I had some real homophobic beliefs and attitudes in my past, and, and I'd kind of moved past that stuff, but, I, but I, I thought that would be a good opportunity. I still didn't know anybody that was gay or lesbian as far as, you know, have an actual relationship or friendship. And so I had signed up for this volunteer opportunity. And I, I think it, it was, you know, I can remember starting that. I was just energized by being around that organization because so many of the people that were involved, they believed in what they were doing and they, they loved each other and they were creative and they were passionate about their work and they were putting everything into their work. Uh, which I hadn't seen a lot of that in the corporate world. And so I was just really, uh, really kind of inspired and intrigued by that. And in fact, I'd kind of started figuring out, well, maybe this is the kind of work that I need to do. And I'd started looking at, you know, do I need to go back to school? How do I get there? And I, one day I got an email and I can still clearly remember the day. It was from the person who had trained me and managed me as a volunteer at Nebraska AIDS Project. Her email said, um, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm taking a position with a different organization. I think you'd be really good in this role. Are you interested? And, and my brain kind of lit on fire. And I said, you know, I'm in no way, shape or form am I qualified, but absolutely I'm interested. And, uh, and I, and I, and I got the job and, and, and that job was, 
uh, in different ways, but every bit as transformational for me as, as my four years in the Marine Corps. It was a, it was a wonderful experience, wonderful people, um, and uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a different person because of that work experience. Mm-hmm. So was, was being able to kind of um, tap into that side of your brain, that creative, that helpful side, did that help quiet some of the other noise, the, the alcoholism, the the frustration that was going on in your life? The yeah, it did. Fire. It did. Um, I, I had a, tr- I had, uh, uh, incredibly strong leadership. I had a lot of freedom. Uh, I was hired and just kind of let go. And, um, you know, when I was working in sales and sales management, when there was tr- times when I tried to kind of step out of my box and suggest new things or develop new things, I was always told to kind of get back in my box. And at Nebraska AIDS project, I was never told that I, um, um, I was told to go make things happen, and, and that's what I did. And so I think I had kind of all all of the things that were missing for me during my time in the corporate world were, were back with me. I believed in the significance of what we were doing, had really, really uh, strong, uh, high-caliber leadership, and uh, and also had a lot of freedom to go out and make things happen. And, and we, we built a whole bunch of new programs and just had a really fantastic team there. I, 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 there. There's been no harder job for me to leave my life than, than when, I, when I left that organization. Mm-hmm. So you then moved on into a couple of other roles, one of them being your last corporate role where you went back. And it sounds like, were you the first person to kind of be in the position? And was it a healthcare system? Yes, it was a healthcare system. I was their first uh, diversity director. So they they really had no idea what they were doing. I kind of had an idea what I was doing, but not entirely, but it was, uh, it was a good experience uh, working for an organization um, and, and building a program kind of from scratch. I had, you know, the, the, the couple, two or three years before that, I had been getting more and more interested in diversity, inclusion, educating myself, starting to go to conferences, starting to go to workshops. And, and even though I was learning about it in the nonprofit space, I still kind of had the for-profit space in the back of my mind because based on my corporate experience, there was still a lot of work to be done there. And so it was nice to have that experience to go into a corporate environment and start to build some programs and a strategy uh, from scratch. What was the biggest challenge that you faced in doing that and how did you overcome it? Um, a couple big challenges there. One was they were a pretty good organization um, and they kind of let themselves off the hook for that. They were a good organization. They were good people, good mission, very mission focused. And so um, to, to, for someone to suggest that they needed to focus on diversity and inclusion almost rubbed a lot of folks the wrong way because they took great pride in what good people and what a good organization they were. But in fact, when it comes to diversity inclusion, they had a lot of work to do. And, and I think one of the other challenges in that position was just structurally, um, and this is not uncommon in DNI situations, but I had, um, I had to accomplish things that I did not have the authority to accomplish. And, um, that sets up some interesting dynamics when you've got to make people that have more power than you do certain things that they don't want to do. That's kind of an interesting thing um, just structurally. But, but again, it was a wonderful learning experience because, um, you know, I, I, I help folks look for some of those things when they're building programs today. Well, I'm very intrigued. How does one without authority convince people with more power to do something they don't want to do? Well, if you're me, you don't do it. Um, but 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 if you're but if you're better at um, 
if you're better at using your influence and if you're better at mapping out organizational politics and being strategic about it, um, it, it can be done. Building relationships with those people, finding out what things that they care about. Um, th- those, aren't, those aren't my strong suits. I'm, I have a tendency when I'm in that situation to take more of a bulldozer approach, which, which isn't very effective. But um, you know, getting to know those people, uh, finding out what their hot buttons are, finding out ways in which you can help solve problems for them, those are, those are a big part of that. And I think, I think structurally, um, try not to put people in that position is also a, a part of the answer. If you want them to accomplish something, make sure that, that uh, they've got uh, the authority and the resources to do that. But, but that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. So from there, you moved into working for the best boss in your world, in the world, yourself, right? <laughs> how did you I get recruited? I don't know if I would say that. The easiest boss in the world. I don't know if I'd say the best one. Yeah. How did you get recruited for that role? How did that happen? <laughs> well, it, it, uh, the, the truth of that is that um, in the back of my mind, I'd always wanted to work for myself. I, I you know, in, in all honesty, I don't think I make a very good employee, um, but, I, but I hadn't figured out what that was yet. But but after that last work experience, I did feel like I had found my work. I still didn't know exactly what it looked like or how I was going to do it, but I did feel like I had found stuff. This, this body of work, diversity, inclusion, how we treat each other, how we make decisions about each other, you know, it, 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 it lit me on fire. I feel, I feel called to this work. And um, I didn't have a plan or a timeline, but... Um, the universe spoke and the organization I worked for hired a brand new senior vice president of HR and she immediately restructured the HR department and a handful of us were uh, set back out into the market. And I can remember driving home and I, and it, because I should have been stressed out. I should have been stressed out uh, after I'd been let go because um, I was married and I had a I think she was two months old. We had a two-month-old baby at home, and I was—I wasn't the only breadwinner, but I was the primary, uh, the the main breadwinner in our household. And I was driving home after I'd found out that I didn't have a job anymore, and I—I and I, I should have been nervous or scared or angry or stressed out, and I wasn't any of those things. I, I was a little bit concerned about how my wife was going to respond, but I was totally at peace. I, I just knew that it was time for me to do my thing, whatever that was. I still had to figure that out, but I just knew that it was, it was time. And so I, I think, and, and that's a story that's not uncommon. There's a lot of folks that I know in our world that are solopreneurs that are self-employed um, and that are thriving um, as people that are self-employed and always wanted to be self-employed, but in some way or another, they kind of had to be pushed out. It, 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 sometimes, you know, the universe has to, has to help us take that first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I have a similar story as well, but I think it sounds like you started with some clarity about what you wanted to do, but I'm pretty sure if, if your experience was anything like mine, it didn't all go smoothly just because you knew the type of work you wanted to no. do. So tell me tell me what that was. So you set up your shingle, Joger Stant Inc. is open for business. What happened? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, you know, I didn't have a plan. I knew that I wanted to do diversity and inclusion work. Um, and I, I thought that was a consultant. And I don't even know if I had a good idea of what consultants did at the time. Um, but, but, I, but I had a lot of information and I thought I was a fairly decent speaker. And so I was going to go out and try to find ways to get in front of people and talk about my work. And one of the big uh, breakthroughs, one of the big, not breakthroughs, but one of the big um, 
early successes that I had was um, there's a local, uh, ConAgra is one of the Fortune 500 companies that's headquartered in Omaha. And I didn't have much of a national network at the time, but I had a pretty strong local network in the space of HR and talent and diversity and inclusion. And, you know, a month or two after starting my own thing, uh, a lady by the name of Angela Jones, who was a VP in HR at ConAgra, called me into her office and told me that she thought I was a rock star and they wanted to hire me to help build their diversity training. And, and I don't think at the time that in any way, shape or form that I was a rock star, but um, that was an incredible thing. Um, and I will never forget her for that because it gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and in, you know, within my first two months, I had a fortune 500 clients uh, that I was doing work for. And I think, you know, I think I, I hope that she saw some, some ability and some potential in me, but I think she was, um, going out of her way to mentor someone and, and to give someone an opportunity. And, and I know that that put some wind in my sails and, you know, there was other situations like that, people that, in, you know, in that first year or two that pulled me aside and that said things to me, that was really, really powerful. But I was, you know, trying to convince people to hire me and, and social media was, was huge for me. Mm. Um, and I started a blog and I got on Twitter and I got on LinkedIn and, you know, because I, I hadn't written a book and I hadn't worked for Xerox. You know, I was a middle-aged straight white guy with a weird last name in Omaha, Nebraska, trying to convince people that, I was an expert on diversity and inclusion, and that that's not an easy sell uh, ten or eleven or twelve years ago. And so, blogging and being active on social media was probably the most powerful tool that I had for that at that time, um, especially outside of my geographic area. And I wasn't planning on being a professional speaker in the beginning, but one of the things that I did was I just looked for any opportunity I could to get on a stage and talk to people about what I did so that they might be convinced to hire me. And, um, and, and that worked well for me. And speaking is probably still my biggest way of developing business. And along the way, I realized that you can also make money um, as a speaker. But, um, but I, I spoke at conferences. I, I you know, got involved with the local Sherm folks. I, started, I also started putting on my own workshops. And that was that was kind of uh, gut wrenching work and difficult work, but it was also really valuable. I would rent, you know, I would rent a meeting space and set a time and set up a registration website and try to convince people to pay thirty or fifty or a hundred bucks to come to a three or four hour workshop, and um, and that was good because it forced me to put my stuff out there. It forced me to continue to develop my stuff. Um, I had to deal with. Um, you know, a three or four hour workshop for one or two people, which is much harder than a thousand person keynote. Um, and um, and um, I just got used to doing that and doing the work. And, and um, those first, you know, year to, you know, the first two or three years, I didn't make a lot of money, but I, I made enough to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I even had business cards printed until after I'd been in in business for a couple, two or three years, I just, I, I spent almost no money and, uh, and I just threw a lot of stuff out there and, and tried to see what would stick and what would work. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm sure that you get asked a lot of the same questions that, that I do since we're similar and that we're sole proprietors who speak primarily for a living. And the, probably the most common question I get asked is how do you become a speaker who gets paid? And then the second one is how do I start my own business? And, and you shared some great, insight there as to kind of what it looks like, I think, um, 
what would you say are the keys to to what got you started? Was it relationships and, and writing, putting your thoughts out there, being on social media, speaking anywhere and everywhere? Is that anything else that you would add to that? Yeah, some of all of that. Also, you know, a little bit of panic. Um, I, I think it's probably best to start this as a side gig. Um, I didn't do that. I didn't start it until I absolutely needed to. And um, my wife was really cool, but I knew you know, if we weren't paying our bills a few months down the road, she wasn't going to be quite as supportive and I didn't want her to panic. And so um, I was really hungry and really driven in the beginning uh, just to, to, to try to make some things work. But I think, you know, especially on the speaking thing, there's a lot of people that come up to me and say, you know, I, I like all the stuff you talk about. I think I could do this. I'd like to do this. And, and I, I think, you know, the, those initial steps oftentimes get overlooked. Um, you know, have you put some stuff together? Do you have prepared material? If you're going to talk to an audience, what would you talk to them about? This Just having an idea of being a speaker um, isn't going to get you hired. And I think a lot of people want to skip some of those first steps. Um, I do think you have to speak for free. I think it's you have to speak for free in the beginning just to become a good speaker. Even if you have a comfort level or some talent, you still need to, to hone your messages. And so um, and, and I don't care what community you live in, there's tons of free speaking opportunities. There's networking groups and chambers and rotaries and church groups and youth groups. And I, I did all of that stuff. I would speak to anybody that would, that would give me 15 or 20 minutes or, or an hour. And um, you, you hone your message. You get used to answering questions. The more questions you get from the more audiences, the more you're able to hone your material and, and patch holes in it. Um, I think that's really, really valuable, but, but a lot of people don't want to do that. They go into this idea of being a speaker as, you know, I'm going to be a, a 10 or a $20,000 keynote. And I don't think most people can go right to that. I don't mm -hmm. think they can take that first step. Um, they've got to do, they've got to be, first, they've got to be a, a $5,000 keynote. And before that, they've got to be a $500 keynote. And before that, they've got to speak for free at a bunch of different places. Right. Um, I think that's a big part of it. The relationships is a big part of it. You mentioned that, um, um, you know, going back to honing your material, I think writing is a really, really important part of that. I, I listen to, um, I listen to some, some podcasts that are hosted by comedians and, and the shocking thing about it uh, is, is that their work is very similar to our work and, and we don't see that. We just see them on stage, but a lot of their work is writing, right? Sitting alone in a room trying to figure out what they have to say or what they want to say. And I think that's true of speakers as well. We see, we see the finished product, but you don't see the writing, the thinking, the reading, the wandering around, the talking, the listening that goes into developing those messages. There's a, there's a you know, I don't know, for every good hour of, of content delivered on stage, there's, you know, I don't know, 10 or 100, sometimes 1,000 hours um, of development that goes into that on the backside. I think that's sometimes what people don't see that, that have this idea of going in into speaking. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you remember, it sounds like you had, you know, some paying clients early on for workshops, et cetera, even though it, you know, may not have been what you are charging today, but do you remember how long it took you to get an actual paid speaking gig from when you first started? Um, that's a great question. I, and I could probably go back and, and give that a specific answer. I, I would say, um, 18 months, two years, uh, there might've been, you know, a small 
like a $50 honorarium or two before that. Um, and I was, I was getting people to pay for workshops, but as far as, you know, we will pay you this amount of money to speak at our conference. It was probably 18 months uh, to two years. And I had been doing a whole bunch of public speaking before that, just because of the jobs that I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, even when I was out full time um, seeking those speaking opportunities, um, it was, you know, 18 months, two years before I got a paycheck. And, and those those speaking paychecks weren't very big. Um, I was elated to get them at the time. Uh, but you know, they weren't large amounts of money and you know, it was, you know, I can still remember the first time I got paid $1,500 to speak at an event. That was, that was groundbreaking for me. And that was, I'd probably been speaking and consulting for three or four years, uh, mm-hmm. by that point. But I remember thinking, you know, I, I'm here, I, I'm, I've made it. Yeah, you uh, made it. <laughs> and, and you know, of course, six months later, I'm like, um, that's that's not nearly enough. We've got to we've got to go a lot further than that. But 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 it is a very relative thing. If you haven't been getting paid, then you know fifty dollars is nice. And when you've been getting paid fifty dollars, then five hundred dollars is, is is a breakthrough. But. Mm-hmm. I have a, a another speaker that I I listen to her podcast, and she talks about you have to do a lot of speaking for a hug and a mug. For yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have more you Starbucks. Have those- yeah, Starbucks gift cards that I don't even use because I don't go to Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And and you have to take those opportunities very seriously. They're, those are important steps along the way. Mm-hmm. So you, I think, you know, I've seen you speak many times, um, both, you know, in, in programs and workshops, as well as on a keynote stage uh, yourself, as well as with your sometimes partner, Jason Lawrenson, who you mentioned earlier through your ta- talent anarchy kind of brand. And I think you are amazingly compelling. Um, you deliver your message really well. It's succinct. Um, people, I think, really engage with you and connect with you as a speaker because you have an intensity about yourself and your message. Is that, and I think you're a poet at heart and maybe in life and a writer and a thinker. Um, is that, is being a great speaker like you are just a natural talent or? a combination of talent and real intentional development. Tell me how you've kind of gotten to where you are and how you'll continue to grow as a speaker. Wow. I have no idea how to answer that question. I think, um, um, goodness, I, I think, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I take it very seriously. I, I've always taken it very seriously. Um, if you're going to let me have an hour of your time, um, I, that that's a that's a big thing to me, and I want that to be of value to you in some way. Um, I take it seriously. I try to be well prepared. I practice a lot. I don't practice as much as I used to in the beginning, um, but I practice a lot. I, I don't know. I don't know if I know um, what goes into it. I think I have a little bit of natural ability or talent, um, um, but but I, but I don't know if I know what what all the ingredients are to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, um, yeah, I I don't know. That's, I don't, I don't know that I have a very good answer to that question. That's okay. Sometimes the genius doesn't always recognize how (laughs) they got there. (laughs) Um, In terms of, you mentioned it earlier, I'm sure that you have both uh, feedback, pushback. uh, You maybe get some gigs or lose some gigs because as you described yourself, you are a white Married guy from Omaha 
who grew up on a farm in Iowa, who speaks about the topic of diversity. Um, So how do you, how do you address that with audiences that that maybe initially um, or even during your talk are kind of dismissing you as someone who doesn't have both the uh, background or the authority to speak on the topic of diversity and inclusion? Yeah. You know, I, I, I bumped up against a little bit of that early on. Um, but, but, but interestingly, what I've found along the way is that, um, and, and there's probably still today some individuals who, um, you know, when I walk in the room, think to themselves, this is the expert on diversity. Um, but, but, but what I've found is that even in this work, which is focused on diversity and inclusion, I still benefit from a tremendous amount of racial uh, and gender privilege. I, I, I think even though sometimes there's individuals that may question my ability, I know that there are organizations today that hire me to do this work because of my race and my gender and my, my identity. Not, I, don't, I don't think exclusively because of that. I hope that I have some talent. I hope that I have some valuable content, but I think increasingly organizations are trying to find ways to connect this message to their straight, white, male managers. And they're hoping that maybe if it comes from a face that looks similar to those, it might resonate in a different way. So, so even, even in this work, um, the crazy thing about it is I still benefit from, I think, quite a bit of privilege. Um, and you know, there, there was a couple of times early on where people actually came up to me after workshops and said, you know, I really wasn't expecting much from you on this topic, but this was a really wonderful presentation. So, so I know that that happens once in a while, but, um, I think at some point, um, you know, I, I became aware of the fact that, that that's pretty small compared to the fact that, um, I, I still, I still have a lot of privilege and even inside of this work, I still benefit from that privilege. Mm-hmm. Well, and I will link to uh, some videos of some of your talks and in a disruptive HR talk that you did uh, to give people an idea that maybe haven't heard you speak before of your message and your style. And, and again, having seen you speak multiple times, I think part of what mess, what resonates for me about your message is, is, is that you talk about diversity and inclusion in a different way then I see a lot of people talking about diversity and inclusion, regardless of what what their background is or 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 how they appear or uh, show up. You're talking about it in a way that is practical and applicable, but it also is a bit jarring. Where other people might say, you know, diversity is important because companies make more money if they have more diverse people on their boards, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You're really kind of getting to the root of the message. If you have to boil down your message, which I'm sure you have done and do, what is what is the main point that you're trying to get across about diversity and inclusion? I, I might answer that differently on a different day of the week. Um, but I but I think, you know, um, I want folk, I, I think, I think a lot of folks have to unlearn some things about this stuff before they can learn some things. Because I think that these words have become so politicized. These words mean so such specific things to different people. And so I think a lot of times with my messages and my content, I want to, I want to convince them that this isn't, this isn't kumbaya. It's not political correctness. And it's not even about all of us liking each other. We're not all going to like each other. Not all of us are terribly likable. That's, that's not the objective. And, and I also I've kind of tired of the uh, business case for diversity conversation in general. I think if we're still 
questioning what the business case for diversity is, we're, we're woefully behind the times. And, and I, I, I don't even really try to convince people that diversity, and when I say the word diversity, very specifically what I mean is difference. Um, but I'm not even trying to convince people that diversity or difference is a good thing. I think what I'm trying to convince them of is that it's a natural thing. It's, it's a natural part of the human experience. One of the, one of the very few things that we have in common as human beings is that in some way or another, we are all different from each other. I'm trying to convince them that difference is natural and that it has consequences. Um, you know, asking yourselves whether diversity is a good thing or a bad thing is kind of like asking whether gravity is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a natural thing and it has consequences. Do you want to work with gravity or do you want to work against gravity? Do you want to work with difference or do you want to work against difference? Um, those are, I think, really important questions for leaders and for organizations, but I think there's still a lot of very kind of foundational level learning that has to go on. Mm -hmm. um, about what diversity is and how it shows up. Um, I think there's still a lot of confusion and misinformation out there. And, and, and I think one of the other things that I try to do is um, I try to use myself as an example. Um, and that seems to be a good way of welcoming other folks into the conversation. You know, a, sometimes when I walk into a room, people are pretty defensive. They're not really happy to be there. They're not really happy that I'm there. They're not really happy that we have to talk about this stuff because they think they're going to be accused of being a bad person. And I don't really, I don't really, you know, again, I don't approach it as a good, bad thing. And um, I, I try to use myself as an example. I try to use all of the ridiculous things that I've said and thought and done over my life as examples of um, things that we do and, and possibilities to learn from them and do better and do differently in the future. Mm -hmm. I love your your definition of diversity as difference. So, what is your how do you define inclusion, or how do you describe inclusion? Yeah, so diversity means difference, and, and that's just the definition that I find in the dictionary. I haven't found a good reason to use another one. So, it's so diversity is really about the the mix of ingredients, the the ideas, the people, the perspectives, the identities that we're including in a group or a process. And inclusion is really about the container that we're putting that mix of ingredients in. It's about the culture, the environment. Is it a container that actually values difference or not? Uh, because if you put diversity into a container that doesn't value difference, things don't go very well. Um, there's a lot of folks in my line of work that like to say diversity makes teams better. Diversity makes organizations better. And, and that's problematic because it doesn't always make teams better. It doesn't always make organizations better. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the container or the organization or the culture that you're putting that diversity into. It's got to be a container that sees difference, not as a problem, not as a challenge or a barrier or a deficit, but as an actual source of value. Um, so being intentional about that container um, and making sure that it has a positive orientation towards difference. And, and one of the simple examples that I use is in your organization or in your team, do you have a healthy relationship with conflict? Do you see conflict as A, natural between human beings, and B, valuable if done well? Because most teams and most organizations don't have a healthy intentional relationship with conflict. And conflict is one of the ways in which diversity manifests itself between people. Right? Mm -hmm. If you and I, it doesn't matter how much you and I like each other, it doesn't matter how much we have in common, there's still difference between us. And if we have a conversation and we're honest with each other, at some point there's going to be some disagreement that shows up between us. Do we see that as a good thing or do we see that as a bad thing? 
And most organizations and most teams see disagreement as a bad thing. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of analogous to how they see difference and diversity in, in general. Um, how you approach it makes a tremendous difference. Sure. Well, and I just, again, I, I love your thoughts, whether you're speaking from a stage or you're writing and, and kind of speaking of your writing, I think you're a very compelling writer who mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. done the the uh, the great thing of written, you've written at least one book with Jason Lawrenson called Social yeah. Gravity, and I'll link to that. Um, but I believe you're also working on another book. Is that correct? Yes. So tell me about that process. What's going oh, on? Gosh. <laughs> oh, gosh. The process is mostly uh, procrastination and hiding. Oh, that's um, perfect. That's what everybody uh, does. Well, okay, good. I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. Yeah, I, I, I thank you for, for your kind words. Um, I, I love writing maybe as much as speaking. Um, the problem for me with writing is that it doesn't come with the same kind of deadlines that speaking does. Like if you, if you agree to a speaking gig at some point, regardless of whether you're prepared or not, you have to get on stage. Uh, but writing, at least writing your own book, um, that's an easy thing to continue to avoid for longer periods of time. And I, 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 um, I don't know what it is, but but I, I go through cycles of I'm really into it and then it, it freaks me out and I run away and I, I hide for a while. But um, um, I am working on that and um, I, I need to I need to write more on my blog and probably everyone says that. But um, I, I do think that there are um, some important and timely things that need to be said about this body of work. And, and, and I am trying to I am trying to make it happen. I am trying to put a book together. Well, I look forward to to reading that. But in the meantime, and I again, I will link to this in the show notes. I don't know if, well, I'm sure you remember this, but probably my favorite piece of writing that I've read ever, and certainly from you, is your post that you did on a Medium blog called I Am 21A. <laughs> You remember that? I do. I do. I actually <laughs> love that piece as well. Tell me, tell tell our audience, and you know, I hope everyone will read it uh, in the show notes. But tell tell us what brought that on and kind of what that's about. Yeah. So um, even even though I'm not always good about proactively writing for stuff that I'm going to publish, like my book or my blog posts, but I am always writing. I, I carry a moleskin with me everywhere I go. I'm always jotting down notes and quotes and sitting down and writing things and. Um, you and I both do a lot of travel, and um, and when you do a lot of travel, you realize that you that that's just a kind of a unique way of life. And um, at some point, I had the idea of uh, of writing a little bit about it, and um, I started sketching some stuff. and And I wrote that originally. I probably wrote that four or five years ago, or started to write it four or five years ago. But um, wanted to just kind of write about some of the some of the funny aspects of, of being on the road all the time and some of the sad aspects of, of being on the road all the time. Um, I, I think, you know, if you don't travel on a regular basis, there's a lot of that stuff that you don't experience or you don't realize or you don't see. And, and it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I, I don't know how many folks read that post, but you know, of the folks that read it that are road warriors, you know, I got messages from a lot of folks that, that, that stuff kind of resonated with them. So mm-hmm. that's well, fine. I- 
I think, you know, for anybody who aspires to be, for example, a speaker or a road warrior or someone who travels, you know, they see, uh, and I do this as well, you know, I post the the really pretty pictures of the views and, right. you know, I'm, I'm right. in this city and look at this stage I'm speaking on and, and I'm yep. sure myself, I do that when I see other people post that I want, I want to do that. I want to right. be there. <laughs> um, but to read where you're writing about, you know, you went a whole day without talking to anybody, <laughs> You know, um, and how, you know, people, you just show up and you deliver and then you kind of go from one cab to another plane. And yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that I was writing about, you know, the speaking and traveling life as a somewhat established speaker. If I'd, if I'd written that post five or six years ago, it would have been even, you know, I, I can remember, um, you know, Jason and I got booked one of our first paid speaking gigs that we got paid uh, to speak at together was somewhere in uh, uh, somewhere in South Dakota. It was the South Dakota State Sherm Conference. It was in the middle of the state. And so, you know, it was an eight hour drive each way and, you know, sharing a hotel room. And, um, you know, that's another aspect of it that on on the way as you're building the business, it's uh, it doesn't look like um, what you think um, a keynote speaker's life life might look like, but um, yeah, it, it's uh, and and so you know, I I just wanted to I kind of wanted to share some aspects of that experience, and and uh, and that was a fun piece to write. Well, I love it, and I'm sure your book will be equally as compelling and and well written. Um, but in the meantime, for those who uh, are waiting on the book, like myself, we can follow you on social media where you. You randomly appear these days, but you have times where you drop in. And I, when people ask me who my favorite Twitter accounts are, you will always be on that list, especially on Joker Stant rant days. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> because yeah, you're so you're funny, but you you are getting across a message, and I just I love the stream of consciousness that sometimes come out. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I I I um I still maintain a fairly active presence on Twitter. I think over the past couple of years, um, I've I've stepped back from the amount of time that I actively spend on social media because I think it was making me a crazy person. And so, I have a pretty active stream on Twitter. I don't always spend a lot of time there. Once in a while, I do. Um, it tends to be when I'm traveling and waiting in line at the airport uh, is always a a pretty good time to tweet. But I do post quite a bit on Twitter, mostly DNI stuff once in a while, personal stuff once in a while, rants, um, um, a little bit on Instagram. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. I've kind of, um, um, Facebook and I are not living together right now. We'll see how that, that goes in the future. But, uh, <laughs> what is the quote that you post most every day at the beginning of the day on your Twitter account? Yeah, so there's two things that I post almost every day on my Twitter account. The one is I post in the morning, and and you caught me off guard. I'm not even going to give credit to the person who who it comes from. But starts with a quote. Is, I know that. <laughs> the quote is, um, "I'm different. Please let that not offend you." And and that might not even be quite it, but that's pretty close to what it is. And then I always try to sign off on my Twitter account by saying, uh, "Be good to each other." And I love it. So I I see those and I I wave back to you from Cincinnati to Omaha. So as I mentioned, I'll link up to your book, your website, uh, the places where you write, your social media accounts, uh, some videos of you speaking. Are there other places that uh, people can get more of the Joe Gerstant experience? 
Um, you know, other than my house, I think that's that, those are the main things. <laughs> Maybe someday I could come and meet the dog and the cat and the kids Absolutely. and the wife. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity to learn more about you. As always, fascinating. You fascinate me. And um, I really love the work that you do and continue to look forward to learning from you in the future, Joe. Well, thank you kindly. And thank you for the, the role that you're playing in our community. All right. Well, thanks. And thanks. have a great day. You too. Do you want a little help creating your personal brand? Well, Jennifer has a free resource for you. The Personal Brand Workbook will help you figure out what your personal brand is today and what you want to be known for in the future, as well as how you want to impact the world. Go to jennifermcclure.net slash pbworkbook. That's jennifermcclure.net slash pbworkbook and download yours today.